You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. I do have a trading question for both of you. This is a real serious trading question. And when I say real serious, I'm not saying it in a joking way. Usually people say, I'm about to say something really serious, and then they fart or whatever. <laughs> but I recently had on General Robert Spaulding on the podcast, and he was the top White House advisor on China. And he wrote a book, How China is in Continuous State of All Sorts of Warfare with Us, Economic Warfare, Financial Media Warfare, Supply Chain Warfare, and on and on. And he was saying on the podcast that 100% chance China invades Taiwan by the end of, the, of, this, of these four years. And there might even be a chance, it could happen any day. It might even be happening before the midterm elections in, in this year, in November. And my question is, do you think a trading strategy, like a Nassim Taleb style trading strategy would work? And we could describe what that is, but what would work for, as a hedge? I don't want to sell anything I own. That's the whole point is because I do think what will happen when China invades Taiwan is that there'll be the initial headlines, nuclear war possible, US readies, nuclear readiness, whatever. And, and then there's all this analysis and 
people talk on TV about nuclear war and they're all stupid. But so then the nuclear war fears will go away. The market though will have, at first, the day after China invades Taiwan, the Dow Jones is going to go down 10,000 points. The S&P will go down 1,000 to 1,500 points. You know, then it'll bounce. So I don't want to sell anything that I own, but I do think it's reasonable to figure out a trading strategy that hedges so you, you're not so down. And I said the Nassim Taleb style, which you guys could describe or I'll describe. What do you guys think? We would never, and, I, and Omid would be much better on the Nassim, on the option piece. And we've talked about this before, James, and I know Omid and I have as well. And we've traded kind of way out of the money puts and calls and in different ways. But the notion that we've talked about this, where you just every month or I don't know, every quarter you buy way out of the money puts. And it's a lot of the strategies we've talked about over the years where Maybe you lose every month you know, or every quarter until obviously there's a huge event and you win in a big way. But we've always preferred, and I, I probably still do, to wait for the event and then try to operate off of that event. Because we don't like losing money every month. Like When you buy those puts, you're losing money, as you say, until the event happens. Yeah. I mean, we've done it. And I know Omid, I don't want to speak for him, but I think likes those environments as well where you have these huge swings and things get very irrational. And it's obviously very hard to operate under those circumstances if your current portfolio is massively down. But if you have a reasonable portfolio where you have some cash or you have some type of hedge on, so you're in a position where the markets are wildly irrational, the headlines are the world's ending, there's going to be a lot of value out there. We always looked at the closed-in funds, James, that were trading at massive discounts. Right. A after the event, you would see these closed-in funds. They would have like huge discounts to, to their value and be giving like 15 to 20% dividends. So they were enormous buys. And all they would do is own municipal debt. Correct. And so they were relatively safe in a non-nuclear war situation. Right. And so we've always liked that situation. The hard part there is how often do those events happen? So you look at, it's like in anything in life, you look at your- Twice in the past 20 years. Right. But you look at, in the middle years, you look at your friends that are in all the big funds and they brag to you at the parties that they're in these funds and they're up 20%. And you're lagging because you're waiting for these events where you have some capital available. So we've always liked that. I, that's what I have always liked to do is wait for these events and try to be smart about it during that time. But the option side, Omid probably has a better feel for that. The only thing I know about options is I don't know anything about options. I mean, I know the theory, <laughs> but trading them is a whole other animal. But you know the Nassim Taleb strategy of, of buying the way out of the money puts so he's basically making a bet that a crash will happen this month. But it's but because it's unlikely that a crash will happen, his theory is that people underprice. Like the S&P is at 4,000 right now. So what if I make a bet that within a month, the S&P is going to be at 3,000? There's almost zero chance. Like according to normal statistics and Black-Scholes, there's essentially, it's like a seven standard deviation event. It's, it's like 0.0001% chance. The standard theory about options will underprice the puts significantly. So his point is you can get wildly asymmetric returns spending almost no money. You will lose money every month, but it's pennies while you're trying to make thousands of dollars for every penny. That's a good summary of his theory. There are two challenges with it. One the events that you're waiting for, it makes a huge difference whether it happens next year or five years from now because those pennies do add up. Right. And the other underrated challenge of executing that strategy is when do you sell? Meaning you're doing this and in 2025, China does invade Taiwan. 
markets go crazy. It's the day after, and you've lost 30% on your puts in the, the five years you've been doing this. Okay, do you sell at the open? Do you sell at the close? Do you sell two days later? Do you sell a month later? Do you hold till expiration? I have no idea what the answer to that is. And what we do know is if you recall, like whether it was 9-11 or COVID or 2008, timing this thing is very difficult. I think in 9 and 11, the low was made. I actually don't know. The, the initial low was made five days after. The, the low was made, yeah. I will tell you, at 10.26 a.m. the Friday yeah. afterwards because <laughs> I, I had sold everything at 10.25 yeah. a.m. Okay. But then the market rebounded, but then it went down into uh, 2002, right? The bear market continued. But what, what's also possible when you're talking about something that big, like potential war between two superpowers, maybe the two hours after... China invades Taiwan, the Fed announces quantitative easing and says for the first time ever, it's directly just going to buy the S&P 500 and put it on its balance sheet. And that marks the low. I don't know. I will say from a macro standpoint, this is like, just as a crypto person, I increasingly have to think of like global fiat reserves and currency flows and stuff. Given the direction of travel, particularly what's happened with Russia, assuming the US doesn't want to go into all that nuclear war, with China, which we don't, then what we're going to do is what we're increasingly doing, which is turn to financial warfare in terms of using economic sanctions and stuff like that. And there, it's interesting because China is one of the biggest holders of U.S. treasuries. So you would think if China was going to invade Taiwan, they would start getting out of treasuries and dollar reserves ahead of time, wouldn't you? I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So 
I, 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 first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Here's the thing. They have leverage. They make 99% of our antibiotics, for instance. Wow. But other things as well, our clothes. A lot of our packaged foods that you see in the grocery store, even if the food is made or grown here, is sent to China to be packaged and then sent back here. But maybe the most serious is the pharmaceuticals and the antibiotics. Again, they make 99% of our pharmaceuticals and they could simply say, oh, closed for business. You're not going to get amoxicillin this month. And boom, that's a serious thing. We, we can't put economic sanctions on them the same way we were able to with Russia. It's a completely different story. That was this general's point, is that we have no real leverage over China at this point. It's a good point, because even with Russia, we have not sanctioned their energy industry, which is why the ruble is actually up against the dollar since the invasion began. So I guess this is a long-winded way of saying, I have no idea how you play that, but I do like what Dan <laughs> said, which is, wait for the chaos to show up. And then when that chaos shows up, maybe you're like, oh, look at this, like one domestic antibiotic manufacturer. Its stock is also down heavily with everything else because there's indiscriminate selling. But we now know that they're going to have to get massive government subsidies to ramp up production to just the trade is to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. But my thinking is, look, Omar, you and I were in the meeting in John Paulson's hedge fund 
where it was the same thing. He 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 was saying, here's what's going to happen. This is in 2006. He was saying, here's what's going to happen to the U.S. banking industry. There is going to be a financial crisis, no matter what anyone says. And at the time, the market was peaking, so we had no reason to believe him or not. But he said, I'm going to, and he presented all the data and he was dead on. Like when we left that meeting, oh, but you said, man, we are screwed as a society because we because he was right and we knew he was right but he did say he's going to lose one percent a month until the event happens it happened two years later where he made 600 percent a month or more and so he we would have made back all those one percents and 30 times more than that it would be a similar type of strategy so this way then you have the cash from that from those profits and let's just say you sell it to open you have the cash from those profits to then start buying all the funds that are being liquidated. And so I'm just thinking a strategy like that would be worth it, given that we know this is probably going to happen. The one difference, though, is I'm not smart enough to know the probability of it happening. And what what I liked more about the Paulson trade was he was just betting on a market that was a bubble falling, like eventually collapsing like every bubble does. And then he was saying like, we know it's going to collapse and we know there are going to be these massive ramifications. We just don't know if it's going to collapse next month or two years from now. So prepare yourself if you're an investor. I don't know enough about geopolitics to know about the likelihood of, and when of China invading Taiwan. What would have happened to Paulson if it didn't happen until 2011? Yeah, that's a good question. He definitely would have been out of business. His investors would have pulled yeah. all their money. Just like Michael Burry in, in the movie, The Big yeah. Short. Michael Burry was out of business, except he was holding back withdrawals. And then fortunately for him, the crisis yeah. happened. Which, by the way, it didn't have to happen. There was a lot of things that, it wasn't just housing. People don't understand the full history of the financial crisis, and this is really not the time to describe it. But Michael Burry got really lucky, as did John Paulson, because the crisis did not have to happen. It wasn't really just about mortgage derivatives. It was about a lot of other things. It was about how the banks were valuing them and some of the regulations that had changed about that. It was about whether the grudge that the government and the big banks had against Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. So there was a lot of things yeah. going on at the time. Yeah. And it's important to note that for every celebrity fund manager who calls a crisis and makes 600% of it uh, off of it, there's like a hundred you know, there have been people who've been calling for like the total collapse of something for the last 30 years. Yeah. Like they build their entire reputation predicting like the imminent collapse of the US dollar or the real estate market or the Dow Jones or something. And they've been wrong. And it's almost impressive that they can remain financially viable being wrong about something for 30 years. Right. But it just goes to the point that this kind of trading is really hard. And a small minority of people are lucky. So they hit that grand slam of calling for a crisis and it happens within a year. And then I would say like an even smaller percentage of them are smart enough that they can do that repeatedly. Yeah. I mean, that's why we never did a strategy like that. That's why we didn't invest in, in John Paulson. That's why we've never really hedged, even when we were not hedged in that extreme kind of way where you're guaranteed to lose until an event happens. And it just depends on the probability of that event. One way to use view it, like you ask yourself, how long do you keep losing money? One way to view it is to view it as a private equity investment. So whatever your standard size is for private equity investment, chop it up into 24 parts, like two years or three years, whatever, and see if you can lose that amount per month and still invest it in such a way that if the event happens, you're making a significant right. amount of money the way you would with a private equity investment. So you're aiming for the same type of asymmetrical returns where you have like roughly 
a 50-50 chance at a zero or a hundred X, you know, one or the other. I've been thinking about lately because to me, the potential invasion of Taiwan reminds me of John Paulson telling us and describing in specific detail the financial collapse that he was predicting, which did end up happening. And I remember I called a lot of hedge fund managers after we got back to the office after that meeting, and they all said, nah, nah, don't follow him. He's crazy or that that trade's too crowded. And later on, all those exact same guys said, oh yeah, we were invested with Paulson, so we came out okay. <laughs> so I'm thinking of one guy in particular who, who we've talked about before, who was always one guy in particular that I used to play backgammon with, who was one of yeah. our investors. Because everybody was a liar on Wall Street. Right, right. <laughs> Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And then the final thing is, Omid, how's Ethereum? I will ask the question. Ethereum's down from 2000 to 1580 as we speak. I haven't read the news at all this weekend. Clearly, there's some questions happening about the merge or what's going on. No, the merge timeline remains as is. So nothing's changed on that front. The questions now are one whether it's priced in and how much of it is priced in. Then we had this sanctioning of the privacy protocol on Ethereum, Tornado Cash, which was a important escalation. But that was like old news. That was like last week's news. Yeah, and, and but it's kind of like working its way through the system now in terms of the repercussions it's causing and the questions it's raising about the extent of potential decentralization. And then the other thing that's starting to get interesting on Ethereum is that NFT prices are really coming down. And while there's been all this excitement built about the merge with Ethereum, at the same time, fees on Ethereum have been coming down significantly in part because the NFT boom is ending. So it creates an interesting dynamic where on the one hand, the merge will reduce Ethereum inflation significantly because the proof of work chain goes away and the proof of stake chain has a lot less inflation. But because of an upgrade that was made to Ethereum last year, the inflation rate is not directly tied to the level of on-chain activity because a percentage of the fees people pay to miners or validators are burned. So if fees are coming down and if they're going to stay down, then it turns out that Ethereum is more inflationary than people would have thought a few months ago. So my response to all these, and I'm curious if you agree, is that A, the merge is not priced in to Ethereum, 
because as recently as a few weeks ago, people still were telling me, like significant investors were telling me they don't even think the merge is going to happen. But meanwhile, all the developers I know who are working on the merge are like, that's crazy. We're done. It's, it's, it's all, we've tested it. It's all good. So the merge is definitely happening. So I, I don't think the, the fact that the, you don't have significant investors in it at this point, anticipating the merge shows that the merge is not priced in. And I, I feel like the tornado cash thing, like that sort of event comes and goes. Ultimately, Ethereum is going to be used for a lot more things than creating stable coins or creating NFTs. And this is the my third point is that the usage of Ethereum is going to go way up after the merge. And we haven't even begun to see the use of Ethereum in making for making what I'll call utility tokens, like tokens that are used by individual companies to market their services. Like Uber could issue Uber coin to riders who ride a lot and drivers who get good reviews. And those Uber coins could be exchanged for future Uber rides. So they have a direct value that, they, and now they could be traded. And this is your point, Omen, from five podcasts ago about composability. Now value has been created. So it could be traded on DeFi exchanges for other things of value, like a house or a stock or a bond or other utility tokens and so on. That anything of value basically could be traded on DeFi. And this will start happening you know, more yeah. once this merge happens. And we'll create demand, more demand for Ethereum, which will in turn, whether or not speculators have put the correct price on Ethereum, who knows, but the demand for Ethereum will, will certainly go up. And that means the supply will also you know, start to go down because of the burning. And that's my overall view in a minute. And I agree with it. I think eventually Ethereum will become the global settlement layer for many things. Uh, most of which will happen on layer twos and threes. They won't happen on layer one for the same reason that you and I don't use right. FedWire. All the DeFi exchanges are going to explode. Just everything. Uh, and it, there's what, what I'm excited for now is actually exactly what you just talked about, James, which is that utility of different blockchain solutions for things that have nothing to do with internal speculative dynamics. Like I think the price of this of ETH is going to go up or down. But for all the things we've talked about across the episodes, like ticketing and rewards and NFTs, and frankly, like many things that have not been imagined yet in the same way that like when there were a lot of people in right. 1995 who could tell you like, oh, in the future, everybody will be online, but none of them imagined necessarily like TikTok and all the new business models that new technology enables. So if Ethereum does become the global settlement layer, then I agree with you that the fees are going to be very high, that the value, I don't think it's crazy to say that a decentralized global settlement layer value-wise is going to be value more valuable than any corporate, a single corporation. Like Whatever the argument is for Apple's current, I don't even know what its market cap is, two, three trillion of like products, network effects, ecosystem. I think in the long run, something like Ethereum will actually be more valuable than that because it just provides a lot more utility than a single corporation could. And the interesting thing is, I think that also makes it inevitable that in the long run, it will be more valuable than Bitcoin. And that's no knock against Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin and I think Bitcoin increasingly no. serves an important purpose itself. But it's like the same idea that all the gold is worth 12 trillion, but then all the equities on earth is worth, I don't know, a quadrillion or something like that, just because productive capital is... All, all the financial derivatives on the planet are worth, to added together, it's 1.4 quadrillion. Okay. So productive capital, though, I think we can all agree is 
going to get a much higher market value than non-productive capital. And ultimately, I think ETH is going to be more productive than Bitcoin. Yeah, already there's more transactions per day on ETH than Bitcoin. And once you start adding in these utility tokens, essentially you create a currency for companies to borrow from future profits to market today. Kind of like frequent flyer miles are for the airlines, but now because it's an internet of value, all of these things can talk to each other and can be traded for each other on DeFi exchanges. So all the picks and shovels tokens will rise as well. And this is why I think we're, we haven't even, we're not even in inning one yet of the Ethereum ecosystem until this merge happens. I agree with you. Merge, and then to me, actually more important is like the layer twos have to become actually decentralized and viable and stuff because once you go to every potential company, creator, innovator, developer, and tell them like, you can now get basically all of the security assurances of an Ethereum, but for like microscopic transaction fees that are like possibly like a penny per transaction or something, then the creative potential will just explode. All right. Just wanted to get through that yeah. and, and see your opinion. As the author of Rearchitecting Trust, I have the book over here somewhere. Yeah, Rearchitecting Trust. What's the subtitle? The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money Markets and Platforms. The best title I've ever heard. Thanks for having us, man. People have started emailing and messaging me, and they're like, like several people have been like, I like the book, but James is right. It's a terrible title. Well, I've been wrong before. I told Jocko Willink, um, who's been on the podcast quite a bit, he told me that I think one of his titles, he was telling me once the next book is going to be called The Dichotomy of Leadership. And I'm like, oh, that's an awful <laughs> title. And it was like a number one New York Times bestseller. And he could have beaten the shit out right. of me too. So uh, he was nice about it. But thanks once again for coming on. Thank you. It's not a podcast. It's the James Altucher Show. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there, because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.